You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, this is Greg LeBlanc, and this is Unsiloed. And I'm really glad to have Mayor Statman, who is at Santa Clara University and who is the author of this book right here, Finance for Normal People. And also another book called What Investors Really Want, which came out a couple years ago. And I have a copy somewhere kicking around the house, which I think it was like a rough draft uh, of this book. This book is actually, I think, a lot more detailed, a lot has, it's really much more for an academic as well as a popular audience. And that book was, I think, really accessible. So thank you, Mayor. Great to see you. I'm delighted to be with you, Greg. When you start the book, you talk about first-generation behavioral finance and, and second-generation behavioral finance. And I think you position yourself as, as someone who is one of the founding pillars of second-generation behavioral finance, but you have your roots and your feet back in first-generation behavioral finance. And so you, you've really stitched together these two generations. Could you talk a little bit about how those generations differ? How did the first generation of behavioral finance come about? What was your experience with, with it when you first encountered it? And then how did you uh, help to create this new second generation of behavioral finance? It's useful to begin with standard finance. And in standard finance, people are rational. And so people, for example, in standard finance, people just don't buy lottery tickets. So we don't even discuss that. In the first generation of behavioral finance, it was recognized that people do buy lottery tickets. But why do they do that? Because they are stupid. They commit cognitive errors. They think that the odds of winning are one out of 100 million, where in truth, it is one out of 200 million. But you can see right away that is ridiculous. That is, if you see someone who is about to buy a lottery ticket and you say, listen, you got those odds wrong, this fellow is just going to laugh and go ahead and buy the ticket. And so what we did in the first generation of behavioral finance was to say, here is the prescription for rational behavior. But we said people are irrational. They are stupid. They don't understand math or statistics. And so they want to do exactly what rational people want to do, which is to maximize their wealth. But because they are stupid, they are unable to do it. And so they buy lottery tickets, they trade too much, and so on. So we move from rational to irrational. And I think that we have overdosed on that irrational and we overdose on that first generation of behavioral finance. And I, as you just noted, was one of the people who were at that beginning of behavioral finance. And there, for example, the, the first paper that I did with her Sheffrin was about dividends. And we said, why is it that people like cash dividends, even though, rationally speaking, they shouldn't. If they want to get money from a company, they should create homemade dividends by selling shares. So that was really useful to bring about some phenomena that are real and don't conform to theory. And if reality does not come conform to theory, it is the theory that goes, not reality. 
But as I went on, I realized that we have gone too far to that irrational and we have to move back to what I describe as normal. And the idea is that we are all normal. Normal is not average. Normal is pretty much all of us. And we have to begin with what it is that people want. So yes, the, the title of that book that you noted is What Investors Really Want. And so think about lotteries again. Why do normal people buy lottery tickets? I bought lottery tickets. I hope you did. <laughs> no, I, I hope I, your I listeners haven't. did. And if not, go ahead and buy one. It costs very little and it will give you hope for an entire week before you find out that you have lost again. So why is it that we buy lottery tickets? There are three kinds of benefits that we are looking for in everything, in every product, in every service, in every activity. One is the utilitarian benefit, the money thing, the wealth thing. What is the utilitarian benefit of a lottery ticket? Well, if you win, it might be many millions. That is definitely utilitarian benefits, but it also has the two other benefits, the expressive benefits and the emotional benefits. Think about the expressive benefit. Think about GameStop for a moment as another kind of lottery ticket. When you are in this GameStop and, and you hold the stock, you express yourself as a member of a group that says, here is the middle finger to Wall Street. We are small, we are Davids, but we can win against those Goliath of Wall Street. And of course, there is the emotional benefit of I'm going to have hope of actually winning, buying low and selling high. And uh, there is a pride in being a member of that tribe. And so we have moved from rational, which was theoretically pleasing, but unrealistic, to irrational, that was closer to reality, but still assumes that what people want are those rational ones of maximizing wealth. And now we are relaxing and we are saying, hey, People sometimes do things not because they make a cognitive or emotional errors. They do it because they want to do it, whether it is buying a lottery ticket or doing crossword puzzles or playing golf or whatever it is. So it sounds like the original financial economists with modern portfolio theory, they were attempting on the one hand to describe how they thought people were behaving, but there is an implied normativity that if you didn't behave this way, then not only did you act against your best interest, but you also frustrated the model makers. And so behavioral finance was in part an effort to describe what people were doing, but also it had the normative flavor. This is how you should behave. Do you think that the second generation of behavioral finance is less concerned with the, with the normative? Are, are you really just more interested in coming up with a more realistic understanding of how people behave? Or is it different type of normativity, one that's a little bit more forgiving and a little bit more understanding of human motivations and frailties? Yeah, that, that's a very perceptive question and way to place it. So in the second generation of finance where people are normal, the way I see it is first, uh, it describes reality 
as it is. That is definitely a good thing. This is what science is doing. But second, it does have a normative, a strong normative point that says, if you observe somebody doing something, don't just jump to the conclusion that this is an error. Figure out what it is that they want. So if I see someone playing golf, I say, isn't that stupid? A grown-up with a stick pushing a small white ball into holes. God, this is stupid. But of course, people who play golf will tell you that I missed the point, that golf has a lot of expressive and emotional benefits. And in fact, it has negative utilitarian benefits because you have to pay for the clubs, you have to pay for the greens, you have to pay for everything else. But that is what we are doing. Think about movies. Most movies are fiction. Why are we paying you good utilitarian cash for fiction? It's not hard to figure out. But there are some instances where people do stuff that is normal and yet unwise. And so here is something that is to be taught. So, for example, if you see someone who trades a lot, then you have to ask them, what has been your record? Have you really been making money or not? Maybe they remember only their wins, but if you do an audit, you find out that they're losing money and you say, why don't you stop? And you say, and you find that they don't stop. And that is because they like trading the same way that other people like to play video games. And you say, as long as what it costs you, and as long as it costs you about the same as playing golf, be my guest, enjoy it. That kind of makes finance a little bit more like mainstream economics. In mainstream economics, we've got, I think we make a distinction between preferences and then how you go about achieving your preferences. And economists, they take a very agnostic view of preferences. And they say, well, look, if you like chocolate, you like vanilla, whatever, I'm not going to tell you what you should like. But if I see you trying to achieve chocolate by consistently buying vanilla, then I'm going to come in and start criticizing your behavior and advising you and, and giving you some lessons on how to better achieve your preferences. It seems like in finance, the assumption was always that there were right preferences and wrong preferences. And so now what you're just trying to do is make finance more like normal economics, where we don't judge the, the preferences of the people who are participating in this marketplace. And that maybe stocks and other investments should be looked at the way we look at consumer goods, right? You use the analogy in your book a couple times to food, which I loved because I love food and I love to cook. And I don't think that Chez Panisse and, and McDonald's are, are the same thing, but I'm sure if a scientist sat down and <laughs> decomposed the food into the, the protein and the fat and so forth, they'd probably just say it's the, the same thing. Could you maybe elaborate on that and how you came up with that? And is that really an accurate description of at least one aspect of what you're trying to do? Sure. It, it is actually broader than that. And, and you're absolutely right about the distinction between economics and finance in this respect. Sometimes when I talk about it to economists, they say, oh, you mean that in your utility function, there are also expressive and emotional benefits? And I say, sure. The thing is that, and without going to the history of the development of the field of finance and mentioning names like Modigliani and Miller, we have really narrowed that utility function. And we said, the only thing that is rational is to maximize wealth. And now how do I go about it? And so then those utilitarian and expressive benefits just become irrational, which is stupid. 
And yeah, food is, is one wonderful example. I admire, of course, Harry Markowitz and uh, like to think that we are very good friends. And once at a conference years ago, we, we sat together at lunch and I described to him that a uh, food analogy, you know, I said, look at the plate. You have steak at one point and you like to have it hot and, and medium rare or whatever you like. You would like your beer to be cold. You would like vegetables if you want them on the side and so on. Imagine that we took it all and just put it in a blender and then perhaps using some straw to get it inside your stomach. It's as nutritious, but boy, I don't think that you will go for it. And I would not either. And and the nice thing about Harry Markowitz is that he knows his math, but he knows people and he knows that people want their steak hot and their beer cold and they don't want to mix it. In fact, he and I and, and two of our colleagues, we wrote a, a paper that kind of combined his approach of mean variance where you have the portfolio as one big blob with mental accounting structure where you have money for retirement, money for kids, money for bequest, money to buy a boat, whatever it is. And we brought these together because he, Markowitz, understands normal people and he knows that we should bend the math to real people rather than try to bend real people so that they fit within the math. Yeah. And I think that your work has had a big impact on the financial advisory business, right? Where people talk about goal-based investing and how there's things that you think about other than maximizing your risk-adjusted returns. In other words, people sort their money into different buckets. They maybe assign those buckets to different purposes. I, I think there's a famous story, I think it was in your book, about Harvey Keitel who went to visit Dustin Hoffman in at one point and uh, found that he kept his money in, in different jars. That's how everybody behaves to some extent. And, and the financial advisors, instead of fighting that, I think they've learned to kind of work with that. Exactly. And good financial advisors know that or uh, should know that if they want to do better. I kind of tell this the story about uh, going to a financial advisor and he goes over my goals and my financial resources and says, Mayor, I have wonderful news for you. You have a 90% chance to achieve all your financial goals. And I go home to my wife and I say, I just found out that there's a 10% chance we're going to live in the street. And then I say, how about if he divides my money or she divides my money into those mental accounts, buckets, pots, whatever you want to call them. Now I go home to my wife and I said, I found that our retirement is going to be secure. We are going to have money for food and uh, replacing the roof and replacing the car and going out to restaurants. No problem. And on top of that, we have a 20% chance to leave a big chunk of money to the kids or to charity. It's the same money. But obviously, when I leave the office after I have it in this mental accounting framework, I feel more secure and, and I can tell my wife not to worry. Now, when you talk about the expressive purpose of investing, I think the, the recent rise in ESG investing is 
something that's very much in alignment with with your view of the expressive purpose of investing. People, they have not only a desire for riches and to take care of their family, and they also like to play games. I think you listed a whole bunch of different things, including you want to make the world a better place and you believe in fairness and status. So to what extent is the the rise of the kind of ESG investing movement a function of people's viewing investing more and more as a form of expression of their personal values and beliefs? Well, sure. I started working on those issues. At that time, it was called SRI, Socially Responsible Investing. I started doing that sometime in the 80s because... This, to me, was a perfect example of those utilitarian, expressive, and emotional benefits. When I talked about it with standard finance people, and I said, look, people care about risk, people care about expected returns, but they also care about being true to their values. And you cannot easily squeeze that fidelity to values into either a risk or a return box. So to me, it's a really a prototypical example of what I talk about when I talk about those benefits. So at, at that time, it was really easy. That is, there were a mutual fund companies or really services like Lipper, and they had the list of socially responsible funds. And with two colleagues, we just compared the returns of these funds to the returns of an index and the returns of a matching set of conventional funds. It was really an easy paper that, that got published in the Financial Analyst Journal. And I, I continued from, from there. Now, at that time, and subsequently until really the last decade or less, that was a niche. 10% of investors maybe are interested in it and very passionate about it. But the others just shrugged their shoulders. Now it has become really popular and the name has become ESG for environmental, social and governance. And I'm actually worried about this development because the idea of SRI was that you are doing good for others, quite mercenary, I would say, really going back to the old system of we just want to have high returns and people are just in on saying, I don't give up returns when yeah. I invest uh, by the ESG way. And to me, this really sounds like I donate $100 to charity and I get a deduction for 250 This sounds too mercenary for me to be, if you donate, you donate, you take a deduction as allowed by a, the tax law, and you feel warm inside that you have done good for somebody who can use that money better than you can. This is wonderful. This is what I do. This is, I'm sure, what you do and the listeners are doing as well. But when it becomes just a tool for higher returns, that is ugly might be too strong, but that is at least uh, distasteful. And on top of that, you're not going to be able to do it because once you factor in the cost of the people who promise those high returns, blah, blah, you will find that whatever higher returns without cost considerations are really gone by the time you get those. And so really ESG became, is now, I think, just another way to charge high fees for active funds. 
and I don't like it. That sounds very normative of you. It sounds like you're at least think that some of the emotional and expressive behaviors of people may come at too high of a price with respect to their utilitarian desires. Are you really just saying that you support these decisions when they're made in, a, in an informed way with transparent communications? Or are you saying something more severe than that? What I'm saying is that hypocrisy is not something to be admiring. And so if someone is in it to feel that warm glow of mm -hmm. I'm doing good for people who can use that money better than I can, who are poorer than me, I am helping clean the environment or whatever it is. Once you have that, and I'm going to be making a ton of money out of it, it just feels wrong. I've heard someone who is in this philanthropy field, and she said that wealthy people actually don't like discussions of the utilitarian benefits, the tax benefits of their contributions, because it makes it feel as if this is just a mercenary way to call it charity, but in fact, uh, in fact, fill their pockets. And God knows there are many people who do just that. But mm -hmm. it just if you ask me, do I admire those people for their tax craftiness? Let them enjoy the money. But admiration from me, they're not going to get. So I don't think even though you are more forgiving and a little more understanding of ordinary people, you, you haven't abandoned the project of proving financial literacy and in particular, helping people to understand where they're paying fees that are pointless and when they're engaging in trading, which is pointless. So you do still have a bit of a, a normative bent, uh, at least with respect to transparency and the acquisition of financial knowledge. Yeah, I do. I think that what is important is to make clear what is going on. That is, you don't have to go through great length to, to explain to a golf player that he or she is paying money for the equipment and so on, but enjoying it. Yeah, they know that they're not in it to make money. They're not going to be professionals. All I'm saying is that you have to make the distinction between what is an error and what is a want. And then, of course, I leave myself as I leave to other people to judge whether this is something to be admired or not. And here there might be, of course, many opinions. I don't play golf. I think that it is silly. If others play golf, I don't think that it is silly of them to do that. What I don't like, and I think that I'm not alone in that, is that the kind of hypocrisy where you are after money, but you pretend that you're going to be doing good. This is why God knows I'm happy I'm not a politician, because <laughs> politicians must do this kind of stuff all the time. The beauty of an academic is that I don't have to do it. Now, if you're a financial economist and all you're doing is talking about individual welfare or the trading behavior of the retail investor, that's not terribly interesting to most financial economists. They're really interested in the overall impact on asset pricing and market dynamics. And you've written quite a bit about what you call kind of behavioral portfolio theory and the impact on how we think about market efficiency. So all of the big topics in, in finance are have to be reexamined in, in light of this behavioral finance that you talk about. Could you talk about some of the bigger implications in particular of portfolio theory and asset pricing? So what you want to do is, of course, address those big questions. But the old 
thinking from decades ago in standard finance was that you can do that without regard to what individuals are actually doing, because the argument is that by the forces of arbitrage, all of those errors and activities that make no sense of individuals are going to be canceled out in the total. And so why bother with them? So at least this uh, GameStop saga teaches us that this arbitrage argument has limits, that surely notions of market efficiency have to be clarified. So there are two notions of market efficiency. In one, market efficiency means that the price of securities is always equal to their values. In the other, it simply says that it is hard to beat the market. It is hard to generate abnormal returns, extra returns by being clever. Now, in standard finance, those two get mixed up and it's not really clear. GameStop, for example, is one example where the price definitely is not equal to value because the price was $20 and a few days later it was 400 some and now it has gone down to God knows maybe 50. So the price deviated from the value one way or the other, but it does not mean that it is easy to beat the market. One of my students wrote to me and I said, look, if you're going to put money in it, put less than $1,000. So not all my students listened to me. So he evidently put more and lost $6,000. So it tells you just because the market is crazy, that doesn't make you a psychiatrist. And the market is not efficient in the sense of price equals value, but it is pretty efficient in the sense that it is hard to be. So that is one example from market efficiency as, as the overall, the aggregate. Yeah, I think if we go back in, in time and look at the intellectual history of modern finance, kind of the returns model, CAPM, and the market efficiency hypothesis, were, they, they got entwined, and I think people believed in both of them, and it quickly became clear that you couldn't test them both at the same time. And so it was a question of which one was going to yield. And I think people were more willing to abandon the capital asset pricing model than they were willing to abandon market efficiency. And so that's you know, where we got the Fama French factors, and that's where we start got the Carhartt factor and all these other factors. And I think you, you described that pretty well in the book, how that evolved. And so once we start introducing all of these factors, aren't we just reverse engineering our model to fit fit reality rather than, you know, abandoning the idea of market efficiency? No. So think about it this way. If I said, Greg, can you describe to me an asset pricing model of automobiles? Why is it that some automobiles cost, say, $25,000, and some cost up to a million and, and more. So you say, okay, they have the same utility. I mean, I can drive from home to work and back. Actually, if I drive a Lamborghini rather than a Toyota, I will have to make sure that I put a guard next to the Lamborghini because some people just to spite or whatever might key it or steal it. Um, they're not going to touch my old Toyota. But of course, we know that you're going to have to explain why it is that you have such a wide range of prices for automobiles. You have to add those expressive and emotional benefits there is a satisfying zoom when you drive a Lamborghini, 
that you don't get from uh, Toyota. And here I have no strong views. If that matters to you, that is fine. I think that Lamborghini, by the way, maybe I'm wrong, is made by Volkswagen. It is one of their divisions. So one way I feel my, I, I make myself feel better is when I see one, I say, that's a Volkswagen. So don't try to impress me. So what you can see from that is that we are, if you take it back to asset pricing model, we started with some kind of a general model. If people are rational, they do this, and then you get the CAPM and so on. You don't need a general equilibrium model for, for pricing automobiles, and you don't need one for stocks. And so you say stocks have utilitarian, expressive, and emotional benefits. Having GameStop or having Google or having Facebook stocks, new feels with it. Whereas if you have General Electric and General Motors and so on, you kind of almost feel like lower middle class. Again, if that's what you want, that is fine. I don't have strong opinions on that. I think that it is not wise. I think that it is not wise to have a portfolio that is not diversified. But as somebody wrote to me, investing to me is also about the fun of it. And I say, that's okay. You know, as long as you know how much it costs you and you accept that cost, good for you. So a lot of investors who are interested only in the utilitarian benefit of their portfolio, a lot of hedge fund managers, they spend a lot of time thinking about what the behavioral factors are and the, to the extent to which they can predict what people are going to favor or disfavor as a result of their emotional and expressive attachments. To what extent can you, would you advise professional investors to use behavioral insights to design investment strategies for those LPs or clients who are primarily interested in, in the utilitarian benefits? To what extent can they actually monetize the demand for these expressive and emotional benefits by sitting on the other side and focusing entirely on the utilitarian benefits? Sure. So again, if you are a, in the golf business, you know how to appeal to golf players. So you make money out of their desire to have a club that would kick that ball another foot or two. And the same applies to hedge fund managers. And if hedge fund managers say, all I care about is that is fine. If some people are willing to pay for the sexiness of stocks, say by buying growth stocks, I'm going to bet against them and I will buy value stocks. So value stocks are like a Toyota rather than a Lamborghini, which are growth stocks. The problem with that, of course, is that unlike cars where you know the characteristics and you can say, I don't need the sexiness and I'm not willing to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for it. And your listeners probably know value investing was horrible. <laughs> the last two decades by now tells you that you also have to figure out the changes in those preferences, sentiment of individuals. And maybe what it says is not so fast. Uh, you might make the right decision, the wise decision to invest in value stocks, but uh, it might be that by the time value stocks do better than growth stocks, you'll be out of business. You have a great discussion in the book about Fisher Black's 
theory of noise and noise traders and the kind of the necessity of noise, what he calls noise traders, as you need them on the other side of the transactions that are motivated by information. And I, I think that if in his view or in the view of people that are Fisher Black fans, you've got the informational traders and you've got the, the, the noise traders. And I think you're offering something that's a bit richer than that and digging into those people that are dismissed as noise traders and showing that you know, not only might they have some information that's embedded in what they're doing, but also that it's not simply noise. It's actually a result of actual preferences rather than beliefs. Well, that is right. But but let me begin with, with Fisher Black, because his insight was really deep. And his point was this. If you have people who are smart, who base their choices on information, these are the information traders, and they want to maximize wealth. And then you have people who just are moved by sentiment and to trade for whatever reason. Now he said, if you have a market that has only those rational information traders, they're going to say, if someone offered me a stock to buy, I'm going to ask, what does he know that I don't know? And I will suspect that he knows something I don't. And so he has an advantage over me and so I don't trade. And so he said, in a market where all people are rational, there is no trading. So there's no trading in individual stocks because somebody might have inside information that you don't. And there is not going to be trading in mutual funds because you need to price individual stocks to get pricing of a mutual fund. So that is an extreme one. I remember once explaining it to a lawyer and and he lost patience you know he said but we see people trade so don't mm -hmm. give me this nonsense uh, now so actually fisher black said so why is it that we have those noise traders who trade even though they don't have information and he said maybe they're making a mistake thinking that what they have is information, for example, they read it in the Wall Street Journal with the assumption that they are the only ones who read the Wall Street Journal, mm -hmm. or they just like to trade. They just like to trade in the same way that some people like to play video games. And so again, this really comes back to that framework of that second generation of behavioral finance, where people care about utilitarian, expressive, and emotional benefits. Maybe they like to trade because it provides those expressive and emotional benefits. And the fact that you have those noise traders, that creates volume and that allows those rational information traders like hedge fund make money of them uh, buying when the price is too low and selling when the price is too high with a proviso that sometimes they are smart but unlucky and they end up losing money rather than making it. So if the noise traders went extinct, the markets would grind to a halt. So if everyone followed the advice of the classic financial economists and the early generation of behavioral finance theorists, then the noise traders would disappear. Everyone would buy an index and the markets would grind to a halt because it'd be impossible for people to make money from injecting information. That is right. That is right. And so people say now that more and more people buy index funds, you can be someone who does not have special information, but you are not a noise trader, then what will happen to the market? Prices are going to get out of kilter and so on. And I say when the market is 90% index funds 
where individual investors and, and professionals buy index funds and there are very few active traders, I'd worry about it. You know, I, I kind of say, look, if everyone mined their weight and ate healthy food and so on, we will not need any doctors. But then I say, I think it's going to be a while before we can dispense with doctors. So uh, in the book, you mentioned that a lot of people were confused when Robert Schiller and Eugene Fama both won the Nobel Prize in, in the same year. You explained why we shouldn't be confused and why those two perspectives are really two sides of, of the same coin. And out of those two perspectives comes a, a more nuanced view of financial markets. I spoke about market efficiency uh, earlier. And, and uh, when Fama wrote his first papers in the mid-60s, he actually defined market efficiency as price equals value, that the price is a good estimate of value. But along the way, like bait and switch, he moved to you cannot beat the market. And so now it became, look at those mutual fund managers, on average, they don't beat the market. And now if prices are price equal value, then you cannot beat the market. But if you cannot beat the market, then it does not necessarily mean the price is equal to value. It might be the prices are crazy and God knows how they move. Now, what did Schiller say? Schiller said essentially that prices deviate from value. He says, look at, at evidence about dividends and, and so on. That sentiment, which is another way of aggregating those expressive and emotional benefits, the sentiment also enters into those prices. And I'm not attributing anything to, to Schiller, but it does not mean that it is very easy to take advantage of the idiots and make money off them beating the market. And so that really is people who know something about the air of finance say, how can you help me beat the market? How can I take advantage of those idiots, noise traders? And I say, a better use of your mental energies is to protect yourself from yourself rather than take advantage of others. And so if you ask me, what do I have in my portfolio? It is all index funds. It has a tilt towards value. Uh, that didn't serve me very well. So it was a good decision with a poor outcome, but that is not uh, something that is rare when you have a world where there's a lot of uncertainty. But I don't try to time the market. I just buy it and hold it. And when I need money, whether it is to give to my daughters or donate to charity, I just take it out of that portfolio at the time that is necessary and do with it what is necessary to do. Well, a value tilt might make sense as a diversification move, given that you live in the Bay Area, <laughs> teach at Santa Clara and own real estate in, in the Bay Area. It might actually make a lot of sense for you. to Yeah, to but this is not why I bought the house uh, <laughs> that I live in. And it is, I bought the house because I needed a place to live and I derive a lot of expressive and emotional benefits from being the owner of a house rather than a renter. And I derive expressive and emotional benefits out of having paid off my mortgage rather than carry it and use that money to buy stocks or whatever. Is it wise from a utilitarian perspective? I don't know. It just feels good to have no mortgage. And the nice thing about money 
is that it lets you feel good. And that is what I'm doing. Well, one of the things I like about behavioral finance is in addition to being a respectable academic field that allows you to understand the world, it also ties in very much with how you should think about living your life. And I think that behavioral finance has a lot of appeal outside of academia, precisely because people are interested in how they should manage their money, how they should think about their money. So if you could offer uh, one piece of advice to people who were investors, retail investors, and were trying to figure out how to optimize their utility across all these different buckets of happiness, how would you advise them? That really is an extremely important question. Because as I say, money, wealth, is just a way station to well-being. What good is it if you have a ton of money uh, and because you are so stingy, your children and spouse are estranged from you, lots of fights in the family and so on. I say, what have you gained? Now you're going to be dead and you're going to be buried with it, those sacks of money. So think about it in units of well-being and think about what matters in well-being. Of course, money underlies all of it. With no money, it's very hard to feed the family. But there are other things. There's health, there's mental and physical health. There is work. And work is, of course, about the utilitarian benefits of being paid. People make those trade-offs all the time. I've been offered, in fact, jobs on Wall Street that I turned down. So I'm giving up some money so that I will have the freedom to engage in what is pleasing to me, teaching and scholarship, and we all do that. And so you have to look at all of these elements, including also being true to your values and so on, and really see that money is necessary for all of them. You cannot contribute to charity if you have no money, but eventually it is not the money itself, but rather what you do and how you convert money into well-being. Of course, that person who dies with the big stacks of cash would not be following Friedman's life cycle spending model because that person would spend that last penny in the moment that he, he, he or she expires. So I think that person would probably be as equally unhappy as the person who died with the big sacks of unspent cash. Yeah, that is right. And again, you have perverse benefits. That is, I'm thinking about myself, okay? So there are restaurants where the basic menu begins at $295. Now, if I were eating at that restaurant, I would not enjoy that food at all because I would be thinking that a chef is standing in the back and laughing at those idiots who are paying $300 for chopped liver on toast, okay? So for a lot of people, spending money has that uh, expressive and emotional cost. If you tell me that I can use my money to take a cruise around the world, I say, I have the money for that, but if you put me on that cruise, it will not be long before I jump overboard. <laughs> uh, so you have to figure out what enhances your well-being. For me, some of the things that enhanced my well-being was several years ago, I just realized that I've been really too stingy. I can easily afford airfare, business class airfare, without shortchanging myself and my wife and our kids. And so I'm spoiling myself. I'm old enough to be able to do that. But at the same time, 
my wife and I increase substantially our contributions to charities that matter to us. And so I feel right. I'm taking care of myself and my family, and I'm taking care of people who can use some money more than I can. And that really, again, it is about eventually, it is about well-being. And you have to think about it. Spending on particular things is not pleasing. But ask yourself, what will be? How about instead of taking those sacks of money with you to the grave, how about if you donate them to whatever, food bank, charity, hospital, and so on, so that it can do some good other than just prop your ego? The only problem with that is that the airline executives are in the back laughing uh, about the people who are paying all that money for the extra two inches. <laughs> Absolutely. But I felt exactly the same way. But that experience where my wife and I flew to Israel and we were going to pay a bit of money, several hundred dollars and, and miles to be upgraded to business class. And we were not upgraded. And then I said, let them laugh. That, that is, it is not that I'm not aware that I'm paying four or five times the price of a coach ticket for maybe more than a few inches and a bit of better food. But this is the kind of luxury that enhances my well-being. And if they sit in the back and laugh, what can I do? If there is a fellow who is sitting right across the aisle from me, who was upgraded and paid a pittance for what I paid thousands for. In the old days, it would bother me. I would feel like an idiot. But now I say, I don't care. And what will I do with that money? Nowadays, I don't think that they bury people with gold and sacks of money anyway. So that's going to be uh, a waste. And the thing is that several years ago, I wrote a an article that included about the reluctance of older people to spend money on themselves, their family, the community. I got such touching emails and, mm. and reactions where people said things like, you changed my life. I sat down with my wife and we said, what are we doing? And one woman wrote about having a husband who was reared by parents who went through the depression, always saw the glass as half empty, when he died fairly young, just a few months after the age of Social Security, she found that they have tons of money. And now she says, I'll be working really hard to spend it all before I'm gone on myself. She's going to take trips, business class, I'm sure. But also she has a friend who has a kid that is disabled. And so she is establishing a fund to support that kid in life. And I say, great, this is what I do. That is take care of yourself and take care of other people. Merit, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you. This book here, Finance for Normal People, I, I recommend that everybody run out and buy it and use it to supplement your other finance books. It's a pleasure to read it. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I hope that we'll have a chance to get together and meet in, in person sometime. And we can all be grateful that noise traders still exist, that the GameStops of the world exist to provide entertainment to them and, and to us who are sitting on the sidelines and for you helping to create a richer understanding of people and markets. Thanks so much, Mir. Thank you, Greg. It is a joy to speak with you. And I hope that the people who watch and listen will enjoy it as well. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.